Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Monos is Alejandro Landis's third feature film. It's an awe-inspiring and breathtaking survivalist saga set on a remote mountain in Latin America. The film tracks a young group of soldiers and rebels bearing names like Rambo, Smurf, Bigfoot, Wolf, and Boom Boom, who keep watch over an American hostage, Doctora, played by Julianne Nicholson. The teenage commandos perform military exercises by day and indulge in youthful hedonism by night. An unconventional family bond together under a shadowy force known as the Organization. After an ambush drives the squadron into the jungle, both mission and intricate bonds between the group begin to disintegrate. Order descends into chaos, and within Monos, the strong begin to prey on the weak in this vivid, cautionary fever dream. And we're joined today by the director of this terrific, and also co-writer, pardon me, director and co-writer of this wonderful film called Monos, and that would be Alejandro Landis. Alejandro, welcome to Film School Radio. Hey, Mike. Thanks for the invite. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, you know, th- I know you've heard this ad nauseum, how the film reminds people of certain stories, certain other films, and... Uh, uh, and it's there is elements of that. It's I think you would even concede that the sort of the broad allegorical outlines of things like uh, uh, Lord of the Flies and Apocalypse Now. There are some elements within it. But I I'm also curious about what inspirations other than that you were drawn to, or if if I'm incorrect in saying that, let me know. But what were the inspirations for the story behind Monos? No, you're totally right. I think uh, a lot of those classics either in literature and cinema, influenced me. And when you're talking about making a war film, then naturally you're looking at the texts that ask those kind of elemental questions about human nature because war is a catalyst, a sort of window into, in, into who we are as a species. And so when you look at something like uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness or, or read... Um, you know, Lord of the Flies that we all did maybe when we were in seventh grade or eighth. Right. I think that stuff, it, it leaves an imprint on you. And those questions are asked time and again. I think people will ask them in the future. Now, what I think was exciting about Monos is taking those bits that are within popular culture, but creating a, a whole new language and, and, and particularly in a new context and in a new way of, of asking ourselves, um, you know, who we are and where are we going? In moving forward with that idea that you just described, uh, you and Alexis Dos Santos uh, got together and put together this, the script for this. Tell me, sort of, if are there elements that you were trying to underscore, uh, sort of emphasize in the telling of this, in the writing of the script? What was that collaboration like for you, and what were you sort of shooting for as you were as you were working together on this? Well, I had the idea for this film, and I wrote a treatment, and I had told Alexis about my idea, and he was like, yeah, uh, shoot me over the treatment, I want to read, and, and so he read it, and he was, he was really excited by it, and he was like, let's write it together, and, and, and we did, and, and um, we're great friends, and, and he's very talented, and he made, a, he made a great film about adolescence called Glue, 
and and I really liked that film. And so it was really good to to kind of um, learn about his experience working with with young uh, with actors in that time of of life, and then and then those questions that I was asking politically and and as a species. And so um, you know, it was. It was, it was just like a jam session working together. Sometimes worked alone, sometimes together, and we were developing this this very uh, strange beast that is Mono. <laughs> well, I guess part of the question has to do for me has to do with the the idea of stripping as much of familiar uh, settings, familiar uh, t- uh, touchstones within the within the story out as much as possible, so that you're you're left with this sort of the bare uh, necessities of telling the story about this band of of young men and women and uh, and and how they're dealing in this extreme pressure cooker of a guerrilla style war and how being in for me being watching this film uh, it was it was just this disorienting to 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 sort of watch it so in some ways that's liberating for me as a as a um, viewer I felt liberated in not having to think it through beyond what I was seeing in front of me. Was that something you were trying to achieve in, in making? You know, Mike, it, it's so interesting that you say that because that's exactly, and, and I have to say you're the first person to say that to me because I find like many times in film we get very caught up with backstory and justifications for certain actions of the characters. We also get caught up with like, the first name, the last name, the the place, the name, and and I very purposefully, you know, threw you into this sort of vacuum where the characters themselves, they don't give you the first and last name. You have a nom de guerre, an alias, an AKA, if you will, and you don't know whether they're fighting for the left or for the right or um, uh, who's good and who's bad. And that kind of uh, refusal at times to give you a binary conception of, of the world, I thought was kind of very exciting to explore. In fact, even some of the characters, you don't know if they're boy or girls. Right, right. And also, someone in the audience, someone who's, you know, well-read or something like that, people are always trying to uh, figure out where this is going to end up, right? You you know a little bit about a story, maybe this is... You know, you if this was a film that was pulled from a a, a, a true event or a, or a civil war or something like that, you would be extrapolating where you knew it was going to end up. And in this film, there is no such <laughs> there's no such help at all. And and I think for me, what it does is it strips this this idea down to the elements of what makes us humans in in ways that as we refer to Lord of the Flies, but in ways that are also very modern. It's modern, but it's primitive. It's it's a very interesting way that this film unfolds. But it, again, is that a fair assessment of what you were looking for in the film? Yes, yes, exactly. I think that um, many times those polar opposites are much closer. There's something, uh, and I think you see it all the time. And 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 our in the film, our victim becomes our victimizer. Yes. As well. Yes. Um, maybe the. The, um, the character who most wants power is also the most insecure one and the, most, and the one that most wants to be loved. And so those, there's a very nebulous line between these different emotions, even between eroticism and death in the scene between Doctora and uh, Swede. Yeah. And so 
and bombs are going off. Yes. I think um, human emotions are much more complicated than sometimes we allow, and the lines between them blur. Yeah. And, and so within the fog of war, I think there's a kaleidoscope of emotions that the film navigates, and it doesn't navigate it in a contemplative way, but in a sort of roller coaster way, because you're going through what is a mission, a very difficult mission in the back lines of war. So you don't have that romantic kind of spectacular notion of war from the front lines, but you're in the back lines within this mini society, the squad of young sh- soldiers. Right. And, and there is an element of the Stanford experiment in this as well, because it seems that these young people really don't know what the mission is. They don't know what the overall mission is as well. At least we don't know of it in the film. And they are just operating on what they're being told to do, which, again, it's so raw. It's so... Um, but, Mike, is that so different? from maybe uh, a young soldier when he was sent right. to some war right. from uh, government forces. I'm not quite sure it's that different. I think it's yeah. the norm, if you want to know. I mean, most most draftees or most people who enlist in the Army, certainly here in the United States, really have no geopolitical, very rarely have a geopolitical understanding of what the world is like. Or even beyond, they're usually 18 or 19 years old. They don't know much about the world in general, period. And they will are willing to put themselves in a position to go off and kill people. They are willing to do that. So, yes, I think you're right. But, but what's complicated about that, further complicated, is that what if the, they get sent to, to the battlefield and then who was initially their enemy is now their friend right. and now they've joined against another enemy. Right. And what I'm talking about is they, in regular battles that could be in Syria or it could be right. in Afghanistan, for right. example, where the alliances shift continually. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, uh, and, and that's why I thought it was important not to try to present you like an ideological battlefield that people seem to kind of like, for example, in the case of a World War II, when the lines are more clearly drawn, so you know you're in favor of the Germans or you're against, and people know where they stand. And I think that's one of the reasons people very much appreciate World War II films, because there's a, the, the morality seems to be more clear-cut right. there. Here, you don't approach it through any ideological morality. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Alejandro Landis, and he is the director of a new film coming out uh, here on uh, September 13th here in Los Angeles called Monos. And um, I want to shift gears a little bit, because I could talk to you about this part of the film and what it, how it impacted me for, for a long, long time. But I want to talk about, as a filmmaker, there's so many elements in this film that are so cinematic and um, among the among the best cinematography I've seen in a long time. Jasper Wolf did an amazing job. I'd like to talk about him, but also the sound design and and the soundtrack is it is there are so many cues in that soundtrack and there's so many things that sync up with the visual to make this uh, such a sensory experience. Uh, would you like to talk about Jasper Wolf and working with him as a cinematographer? Yeah, Jasper was was really uh, a soldier. He was an incredible collaborative partner. And this was a very tough film to make. And we worked together building a storyboard, designing all the shots weeks before the beginning. But then um, once we had that, um, we also worked together to build something new. 
So that storyboard, that shot list was really just the foundation to, to create this language, this visual identity, because it wasn't about style that would, that would really feed the narrative. And I say that, for example, because you have the bodies of these, of these young soldiers that are in a metamorphosis, they're changing, um, their voice is changing, hair, their bodies are like an effervescence. And so there's this movement and uh, we worked with a movie cam and then we um, also used the CinemaScope format to allow that wolf pack um, spirit in by having a lot of kids in the shot at once. Mm -hmm. um, we also navigated from uh, the mountain where you had a clear sense of scale uh, and place to the, the depths of the jungle where under the canopy things would start to fragment, you would start to lose yourself and well there in a way you lost that sense of scale and you lost that sense of group as well. And it was just, uh, it was a beautiful time working it with him. I mean, I, I can't wait for us to make something else together. It is it's such a striking film to watch. It's just so, it just, it knocks you out from the opening shot on that mountaintop and just from all of the, yeah, just a remarkable piece of work. Uh, and the, and let's talk about the, the, the sound design, the soundtrack, working on that because it's such, for me, it's, it felt like such an important part of what you were hoping to accomplish with the film. It was also a juxtaposition between the natural sounds and something that was highly stylized, trying to take advantage of natural sounds, not only from the places where we shot, but from other places to build a sort of otherworldly landscape that would feel fantastical without... Um, without necessarily feeling like it's entirely science fiction, right? Right. Um, and, so, and so we, for example, we used a lot of the sounds from the places we shot it, but then other sounds, real sounds, recorded in other jungles or other mountains to build a very unique soundscape for these places. Um, and then uh, add the layer of the music with Mika Levy, who was a great to collaborate with, and, and there's not that much music in the film, there's only 22 minutes, but it... it, it it creates a very strong statement that is also a temporal because you have blowing in a bottle, something as simple as that, but then you have sounds that are coming out of a synthesizer um, and you have characters with certain musical notes, like for example, the character Messenger, when he appears, you have a very shrill whistle that lords over the kids. That's it. That's it. That's what I'm talking about. That that's a, sort of these cues that you get from the audio design of the film. It's just, a, it's just such a remarkable piece of work. I know that some of this is loosely based on the situation that's been taking place in Colombia. It's sort of, it feels like there are some things, elements within this film that are directly um, connected to that. And uh, I'm kind of curious as to the situation that we find ourselves in Colombia today. Is it better? How is it in Colombia? Well, Colombia right now finds itself at um, a very fragile piece, uh, what people hope to be the end of a 60-year-long civil war. And it's not the first peace process. There's been others, and they failed. So ghosts of, that, of those failures are in the film. Okay. Um, and of course, as a Colombian, I was very much inspired on, in that conflict. But uh, I also created a film that I think exists on its own that transcends that conflict because war was invented in Colombia and won't be disinvented <laughs> or uninvented, if you will. Yeah, and 
And and for me, it was key that first and foremost, the film, what it t- what it does, that it takes you to. Um, it's kind of a window. The war is just like a, a window into human nature. You know, you could see it in a schoolyard as well, but in this case, it's just like a catalyzer. Yeah. Well, it's a spectacular film, and I'm just uh, so honored to have had an opportunity to talk with you about this wonderful film. Um, and I thank you. Thank you for your time today. Once again, the film is Monos, and uh, we've been talking with the director, co-writer, of the film, and that would be Alejandro Landis. And Alejandro, thank you so much for being here on Film School Radio. Thanks for having me, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.